0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The
1: title of the book, Grace, Guts, and Glory in America, Stories and Psalms of a Man Saved by Grace, and the author is Edwin Hill, and Edwin joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Edwin. Hello. Good to have you on the show.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to be there. Thank you.
1: This is an inspirational book about your life experiences. I want to share just a few thoughts in the preface to give our listeners a feel for the way you think, the way you write, kind of a theme of, of your book. You say, when his desire, thirst, and choice to live collide with the tough realities of the time, he reflects extensively and takes you on a retrospective journey through his life in an effort to find hidden answers he and many men needs in order to bring happiness to the future, no matter what the cost. So we get a feel that uh, you're uh, cerebral at times, but you're really at the feeling level, at the emotional level, really, aren't you?
2: Well, yes, absolutely. I have to uh, admit that i tried to balance both of those issues
1: in preparing this book. Why did you write the book? Well, Steve, um,
2: quite frankly, there are three things that motivated me to put some of my thoughts and feelings into writing here in the book form. One was that I recognized that uh, it was only God's grace that brought me through a battle with cancer in 1999. As a result of that, I felt it was important to write down and reflect on my life for the benefit of my family and hopefully a large community as well, both locally and my goal in putting together this book was to, frankly, encourage others that they could have both guts and achieve glory as a result of by peace of God. So those are the kind of things that led me to put this together.
1: Now you spend some time at the beginning of your book talking about this cancer. Uh, tell, take us on a little journey into that whole uh, experience and what it did for you, wh- how it changed your life.
2: Well, quite frankly, when you're diagnosed with a a disease like cancer, it's a surprise. And, of course, it's concerning for and all those things. When I was diagnosed in around December 1998 timeframe, I had been living a life of uh, glory to a great extent, being an executive in a corporation, having the funds and the wherewithal to be able to go and do what I'd like to do, and then all of a sudden, you get this shock that You're battling now for your life. And as a result of uh, that battle and the recognition of that battle, I reflected back on my life and other battles that I'd been through and the fact that, in fact, something had lifted me through those battles. And I came to realize that it was only the grace of God that had lifted me through those past battles and that I needed to employ and engage the grace of God in going through this battle. So those are the kind of things that motivated me to put this book to writing.
1: Now, you also talk about your heritage. Tell us about that.
2: Well, being an African-American, born in the city of Gary, Indiana, of a family that migrated to Indiana from Mississippi, probably in the uh, early 1940s. And recognizing that uh, we were young African-American boys and girls growing up in uh, the shadows of the U.S. steel mill, uh, Gary, Indiana, up there, and frankly, it was, was too great extent fun. We didn't recognize much of what we didn't have, and we didn't recognize much of what the opportunities were out there in front of us, but we tended to more or less survive and make our way through each day, again, by the grace of God, from a, a darling mother who, frankly, was a single children in inner-city Gary. And uh, growing up there was, again, it was fun. We had opportunity to explore the neighborhoods, as I've mentioned in several places in the book, and those were learning experiences in more ways than one. And as I look back across uh, my history, I recognize that my older brother, quite frankly, was a bit of a uh, motivation as he enlisted in the Navy, and I determined I did not want to do that. And my older sister was struggling with trying to attend college, and my older brother, in fact, was enrolled in the University of Tennessee, and I said to myself, I think it's worth it for me to pursue this issue of enrolling in college as well, and was successful in being able to enroll in Indiana State University. So what I've tried to describe to you is that from a meager beginning, my family and I, my brothers and sisters and myself, were able to both sustain ourselves and to be able to grow outside of that box, if you will, of underprivileged life in Gary and death.
1: You say in your preface, uh, struggle with him as he determines life for himself in an era thirsting for individual freedom and liberty. Explore his innermost feelings and witness his evolution from a kind of street urchin in the inner city to a corporate executive. So that kind of shows that you have a, a certain drive within you regardless of your Uh, circumstances, and I guess that's what you're trying to tell all who read.
2: Absolutely, particularly young people but all who read, that that inner drive to succeed, that inner drive to capture and pursue a vision that you have for your life, in fact, is possible in this country. And I think that, frankly, is is unique in that the United States of America, without regard to race, to gender, to all of its population, to be the best that we can be. And when I see young people and adults struggling to take advantage of those opportunities, it's worse. So a lot of what I've written is designed to prove to young people that you can grow from a ski urchin in the city of Gary, and Indiana, or Philadelphia, or Los Angeles, or Chicago, or New York City, and grow to be whatever you'd like to be in this country that we have the blessing to be a part of. At the same time, I believe from my heart it is the grace of God that gives us the foundation to do that, it would be my hope that every young person would also grow to be able to understand the grace of God in their lives as well.
1: Your book is filled with psalms, as you call them, that you have written.
2: Yes, that's correct. And the psalms, quite frankly, are a reflection. And Some of these reflections actually, I was writing both laid in the bed and sat in the chairs at John Hopkins University in Baltimore in the early stages of fighting this battle with the cancer of the bone, there, and as you know, when you're in a hospital, one thing you have is a lot of time. And rather than just sitting there and lying there, I utilize that time to reflect on life and to put words to what I would call songs or psalms, so that I could again share that with my sons, my daughters, my granddaughters, my grandsons over time, and with the broader community to help them to recognize again that reflection into self. And that sharing of that reflection into the greater world can be an opportunity to be a blessing to someone else.
1: Why don't you share a few of those and make a comment about what you were feeling when you were writing them, what you're trying to uh, convey to the reader?
2: Well, let me uh, give a couple of uh, shots at that. One of them, which is labeled Psalms 2015, and it's titled, A Friend in and here is based on how it reads. How oft a call from her or him we heed. A friend through life, a friend. In urgency or emergency Need call ourselves a friend. Indeed. For financial or emotional need. we find a way to meet one's need. A friend for always. A friend indeed. To shelter us from cold and rain to come to us in haste and speed, a friend forever, a friend indeed, to be born for us, our souls to plead, to suffer, hurt from rod and reed, to give his life, to die, leave Jesus, a friend, a friend, my friend, indeed. So that particular song or song was designed to express the fact that uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is, in fact, a friend and a place of solace, but it all is related to deed or action. And he was born for us, but he also was born to suffer. So that was a deed, I mean, that's an action, to suffer. And He suffered by both the rod of men as well as by the reed of men, and ultimately by the nails that were rammed, if you will, through his hand, because people often call them nails, but if you look at uh, what reality was in that day and time, these were spikes. Yeah, they were, were huge. Six, six right. inches long, sure. Right. And these items were rammed through not only his hands but his feet, and a crown of thorns was placed on his head, and he was pierced in his thigh. So here's someone who's willing to be available, and accessible to us, not just in words, not just in song, not just in thought, but in deed. The deeds that he performed were deeds designed to be a encouragement to us
1: it always is impressive to me when i hear of verse given how penetrating it is you have a, a very unique style again not only with your writing but here you are also a poet if you will
2: well yes and i think that the, that flowed, if you will that poetry flowed from sitting in a place where i had opportunity to reflect on how wonderful the grace of God has been to my life. Again, this street urchin was now laying in a hospital as vice president of diversity for a global pharmaceutical company and is saying to himself, why and how am I here, and how can I get through this? And the answer was only by the grace of God, and I had to have the guts to engage the battle.
1: And by talking to you right now, it sounds like you won that battle, or are you continuing that battle today?
2: Well, I have uh, won the battle to a great extent, but uh, the battle goes on. The battle does not go away. You're talking about uh, a diagnosis like cancer. But again, that was in 1999, and I'm pleased to say that there's quite a bit that I accomplished post-1999 until I retired from the corporation in 2008. And I'm proud of those things. But no, the battle continues. I have a little symptom here or symptom there, but uh, the love of life and the opportunities to motivate and encourage people are still strong in my heart.
1: No, oh, congratulations, Edwin. We're really pleased that uh, you have been able to live life in its fullness in spite of the adversity.
2: Well, yes. And uh, if I could, Steve, I'd like to share with you another short song. S-
1: certainly. Would. Go ahead.
2: And it's titled, "Oar and Oar." How you have been there, or and oar, in my faith, or and oar. In my belief, thou art there, for and o'er. Thy blessings are there, for and o'er. My help me, one with me. The battle, not mine, but yours. Your power, for and o'er, is seen in each day, each moment. Your grace, for and o'er, the whole Great, for and o'er, you have proven that all things are possible if we only believe. Over and more. and you know, the term for and more is more or less "over." And uh, the message is that uh, so God is there over and over to help us meet, fight battles, and to be able to stand in all circumstances, and to prove that all, if we only believe and stand in that belief of what is possible by grace of God.
1: It's so sad when you hear people going—you know—they're talking about their lives, and you know that they're just going it alone, and they don't have to.
2: One of the things that I've realized is that often adversity in our lives, whether it be health or finances, et cetera, can often be a motivation to do more, to choose to stand up and pursue opportunity, and pursue with the life that you have opportunities to make a difference for yourself and for a broader community. And one of the things that I did coming out of uh, John Hopkins and University of Pennsylvania Hospital was to decide that I wanted to make a difference with my life. And I came back to the corporation and said to them, we have a diverse population or race. And quite frankly, more often than not, we're reacting to some employee's complaint or some employee's lawsuit because they were being treated unfairly as a result of what they believe is either a race or a gender. And I suggest to them, rather than simply being in place to react or respond to adverse situations relative to race and gender, why not leverage that to be a positive? So we engaged diverse employees, either African-American, Hispanic, email, Caucasian, et cetera. We engaged them in the positive aspect of helping the company to perform well and helping the company to grow rather than simply defending lawsuits and other equal employment opportunity actions. And someone at the leadership level said, hmm, that's not a bad idea, because at that point we probably had several lawsuits that were in the millions and millions of dollars that were sitting on the uh, desk of our uh, chief legal office to be resolved. That's it. We cannot continue to live like that in this corporation. Let's turn this all around to make diversity an advantage for the corporation rather than defending where we are with regard to diverse employees and how they're being treated in the organization. And the response was overwhelmingly, yes, let's do that. So we created the Office of Diversity. I was asked to come join them as the Vice President of Diversity for the Pharmaceutical Group, and we employed one for the consumer business as well as for the uh, medical devices business in the corporation. And I think it made an overwhelming difference in the whole atmosphere in the corporation The employees now felt that they could be valued, recognized, no matter who they were or where they were from, and able to make a contribution to the corporation and be recognized for that. And at the point in time that I retired, we had an African-American who was the chief human resources officer for the company. We had an Asian woman who was the head of the pharmaceutical group of company. We had a uh, diverse sales and marketing organization across the company wherein African Americans and Hispanics could pursue selling the products in diverse communities around the country and have that be beneficial for the company. We even, in my organization, enrolled people from the traditional sales and marketing venue into human resources-type roles as a way to broaden their experience. And today, three of those individuals are now in senior vice president roles or and one is running a company in the United States of America today, i spent time both in sales and marketing and human resources. Part of my strategy around getting diverse people to give the best they can be and grow and grow organizations. And it worked in those instances.
1: Well, it sums up, I guess, uh, what you just explained to us, what your focus of life is all about. As you put it, grace, guts, and glory, and you've implemented that right into a corporation and had great success. Congratulations, Edwin. Very much. How do we get your book?
2: <laughs> well, the book is available uh, at uh, Amazon.com. It was published by iUniverse, and simply that title can lead an individual to the site where the book can be ordered.
1: Well, we want to thank you so much, Edwin, for being on iUniverse Radio.
2: Well, it's been my pleasure, and I thank you very much for the time and the opportunity.
1: That was Edwin Hill. He is the author of his book, Grace, Guts, and Glory in America, Stories and Psalms of a Man Saved by Grace.
0: To iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
3: East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices, toll free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.MealsOnWheelsEastTexas.org. Again, toll free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.MealsOnWheelsEastTexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels.
4: Saturdays on Toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on TogiNet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen every Saturday on TogiNet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to
0: iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The
1: title of the book, Once Upon a Challenge, Hearing is Believing, and the author is Nancy Burns, and Nancy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Nancy. Good morning. Well, this is a story of your life experiences with a very interesting, challenging moment when you were 11 years old when you lost your eyesight. And so it's about adversity. Uh, As you say, adversity can be humbling, but it also can be one of our most powerful teachers. I believe that there is a reason for all things, and I also believe that for every problem there is a solution. That's a great deal of wisdom that you have gained, which most people often don't gain in life.
5: That's basically my philosophy of life, and I think that it is relevant to all segments of society, of society um, whether we are blind, um, visually impaired, uh, normal, whatever that is, general public. Um, the title of the book, as you indicated, um, Once Upon a Challenge, the first part deals with challenges, and I believe everyone has challenges. And so the way we deal with these challenges, in my opinion, is really the key to success. And the other part of the title, Hearing is Believing, obviously is a pun on the uh, phrase that we all hear, seeing is believing.
1: Now tell us why you wrote this book. Obviously writing a book when you're blind has to be a challenge.
5: Uh, Well that's kind of a two part question. Um, Writing the the mission, my mission (laughs) has been to write this book for many years because it's my philosophy of life. Based on my life's experiences, writing it as a blind person really isn't a, a terrible challenge because of today's modern technology. I have a computer, just like you have. I have a keyboard, just like yours. I do not use a mouse. However, I do everything with keystrokes, and there is a software system Uh, which allows me to go back and read uh, through synthetic voice what is on my monitor.
1: Well, let's go back into the 1940s. You're in sixth grade. Tell us what happens.
5: Okay, well, I was just a a run-of-the-mill school kid in the sixth grade and back in the Midwest, which is a mining town, and happened to pick up something which was apparently an explosive Uh, but it wasn't supposed to explode yet. And um, I was, both of my eyes were severely damaged, and basically from that moment on, um, I was a blind kid. A lot of struggling. Um, One of my points in this book is that I knew from day one that I was the same kid that I was, before this tragic accident, but I was never treated the same by my family, by society. I then had a label, and again, that's part of my book to show how um, what a disservice it is to label anyone.
1: Now, in your home, was there support?
5: No, my my family, my my mom was a single parent, and she simply was in denial as was most of the other family members. And finally, uh, I did get some support when uh, a couple of years later I was sent to a school for the blind and saw that there were blind kids out there doing what I wasn't sure I would ever be able to do again. They were just doing the normal things that that kids do.
1: Have you ever had a chance to find out why your mother uh, had such a hard time with this?
5: Well, at at that time, there just really probably weren't the support groups that there are today. If there were, she certainly wasn't aware of them. And then another thing, another detail about her personality was that she was a perfectionist. And She had two daughters. I have one sister, and we were probably perfect in her eyes. Until I became different, quote unquote, and that was just difficult for her to del- to to deal with because of her basic personality.
1: When do you remember that you started to have hope for the future? Uh, was there was there an event, or was, did it just evolve, or what what, what happened? Uh, what what was the process?
5: It certainly was a, um, an evolution of events. Uh, probably, as I mentioned, being with other blind kids was the first step. Then uh, I went to uh, a regular public school, and then I went to uh, UCLA, actually. And when I went into UCLA, uh, I met a lot of blind college not a lot, but a handful of blind college students who were incredibly bright, incredibly normal. There's that word again, whatever that is and they belong to an organization called the National Federation of the Blind. I became involved in that and uh, have been um, for the rest of my life.
1: Your book is broken down, obviously, into many chapters. Some of the headings are quite interesting. You have one chapter called The White Cane. Now, this cane must have been uh, something important.
5: It, it, it is very important. Actually, it's interesting <laughs> Quite often, um, when people see me walk around with a white cane, the first feeling uh, that they experience is pity. And it's, it's too bad. That's one of the things I'm trying to change by this book. That's my independence. That's not something to be pitied. Okay, I, I obviously understand that this world is a, a visually oriented world. And I function quite well in this world by the use of my cane along with braille and, and other things. But, but the white cane is, is my tool that got me out there. When I was working, it got me often on two buses um, because um, it is just such an incredibly useful tool.
1: What are some of the other things that have, uh, in those early years, that uh, were such a support to you that. Uh, was there, was there any person that helped you, a family member or a friend? Or, how did that happen?
5: Yes. In, um, in high school, um, there was one teacher uh, who happened to be blind, and she had a great deal of confidence in me, and much more than I had in myself probably. And she insisted that I take all the prerequisites for college such as geometry and other things that I wasn't really crazy about. And I, I ultimately did that. And I, as, as I look back, I think that probably I wouldn't have been where I am today without uh, her level of confidence. And again, this was, this was a blind woman.
1: So she knew.
5: She uh, certainly was an encouragement to me.
1: Well, Chapter 10 has a title that you, when you first read it, you go, What? My Career as a Photographer? (laughs) What?
5: (laughs) Yes, I had fun with, really, I had a lot of fun writing this book. And um, as a kid, before I lost my sight, I loved taking pictures. And I I was very, uh, obviously, very observant as a child which is wonderful, because I'm still very visually oriented. If you tell me that you have on a blue shirt, I I can picture that immediately. So anyway, after I lost my sight, I kind of didn't do anything with that until I was an adult, and there was one situation where um, I was kind of laughing with my husband, who was taking my picture, and I said, you know, I'm sorry, I can't take yours, and he decided, yeah, you can, and and so since then I really have been taking pictures. It's not a it's not a um, a big deal to be able to listen to someone talking and to kind of center him in what I feel would be the middle of the picture. Obviously, I can't go out like a lot of photographers and take. Uh, beautiful scenic pictures. I can't do that. I could, but probably wouldn't be very accurate. But it's just something that um, I have uh, enjoyed doing, and there are some pictures in the book uh, that I have taken.
1: What is the dark side of this disability?
5: Okay. Unfortunately, in today's society, people who happen to be different are, first of all, often which we don't need. That's not helpful. But the negative cultural conditioning has brought about this attitude. This attitude, especially toward blind people, has been handed down since you know, for, for centuries. There are those people in society who would take advantage of blind kids, of disabled kids, little kids, sighted kids who are, who are abused, have a tough enough time dealing with these kinds of things. And it's my opinion, and again, from my own personal experience, that it's even tougher for a kid with a disability to go to anyone and explain that there is some abuse. And I hope that there will be some people in the field of disabilities who will read this and take heed, and parents, too. Of blind, visually impaired, or any other disabled kids, it's an important message.
1: Now, you also have been involved in dancing.
5: <laughs> yes, I have.
1: I must. You must love that.
5: I do. I do, and as a matter of fact, I, um, my husband and I still love to go dancing, and that's that's where uh, my present husband and I met. Was at a dance during one of the conferences that we both by chance attended, that's that's where we met, and um, again, we both love dancing, and we still love to go dancing here in Albuquerque, and do so quite often.
1: How do you explain to those of us who see, how you go through this process of meeting someone who eventually becomes your husband, you're blind, and you know, there's obviously, because of of the sight, we often place so much on that, on when we first meet someone, how, how did you go through all that? How, did that? how did you deal with all that?
5: Actually, it was just kind of one of those wonderful circumstances that I was from California at the time. My husband was from um, New Mexico, and we were both attending a huge conference of the National Federation of Blind in Dallas, Texas. A friend, A mutual friend of ours introduced us He is legally blind, which means he has a little bit of vision. He'd been in construction most of his life. Um, His wife had left him primarily because of his vision loss. We were both in our 50s. He was certainly not interested in finding a new soulmate. I was not interested. I had been divorced, raised my kids as a single parent. But there we were in Dallas, um, and like I said, we we met at a, during a dance. And uh, ex- he he was just this wonderful, warm, kind human being with a great sense of humor, which is very important to me. We exchanged phone numbers. This was in July of 1993, and in October of that year, we were married and we have just celebrated our 16th anniversary.
1: Well, congratulations. Let's finish our talk about your book, Once Upon a Challenge, Hearing is Believing, with your thoughts about Braille.
5: Okay. Um, I certainly wouldn't have been anywhere near successful without the use of Braille. How do you access a phone number, uh, of course, even a book, or anything if you don't have the use of Braille. Obviously, I, I mentioned earlier there's a lot of technology out with a lot of synthetic speech, and this is very good. But if blind people aren't taught Braille, and unfortunately some aren't because of teacher shortage and shortages and that sort of thing, but how would you function without your piece of paper and a pen. And that's how I feel about braille. I wouldn't be able to really function without the use of braille.
1: Any closing thoughts, Nancy, about, uh, about your book?
5: Yes, I guess the, the main thrust of my book is that for every problem, there really is a solution. And it may not be evident early on. You may have to search, but trust me, uh, <laughs> it's true. And challenges just make us tougher.
1: Well, thank you, Nancy. Uh, tell us how to get your book.
5: Oh, absolutely. My book is available on Amazon.com.
1: Amazon.com, probably other
5: and yes, online, online.
1: retailers as well. Exactly. Along with iUniverse. Yes. We appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us, Nancy. Very inspirational. Uh, we, We certainly can learn a lot from what you've gone through. That was Nancy Burns. She is the author of her book, Once Upon a Challenge, Hearing is Believing.
0: listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
4: He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on toginet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives, published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book,
1: Scraps, Fictional Fragments. And the author is David Luck. And David joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Hi, how are you today, Steve? Well, this is a collection of short stories, of stories that come from your experience of living near a a lake right there in Denver, and then some other, I guess, some other uh, stories from your travels?
6: That's correct, of course. uh, Steve, part of why I named the book Scraps is because uh, it's just a variety of stories, gleaned from uh, many places and many people. Although the, as you mentioned, uh, the first five stories uh, are centered around a lake here in Denver called Sloan's Lake, and uh, I came to write those stories. Uh, I'd been living in the mountains, kind of an uh, isolated area, and I was used to taking hikes by myself and and uh, just not inter- uh, just not interacting with people particularly, and I moved to Denver itself, and a few blocks away from this lake, and suddenly here I was just uh, overwhelmed by people of all varieties and ethnic uh, mix and uh, all the vibrant colors uh, of the city, and uh, that just uh, brought my mind into overdrive, and uh, I started imagining what many of these people I met might be doing in their life, and uh, out of that came these stories, these lake stories, the first five.
1: And you say readers will enjoy the story's characters as they wrestle. These characters wrestle with familiar themes of love, lust, and yearning.
6: Well, I always laugh a little bit about uh, about that when someone asks me, "Well, what what do you really write about?" Well, I think most all of us writers write about the themes of life, lust, love, and yearning, and uh, with outcomes that uh, these stories have outcomes that sometimes. Uh, are not always what uh, you think they should be. And I think that's the surprise in many of the stories.
1: Uh, You use, uh, is it Garrison
6: Keillor? Garrison Keillor quote.
1: Yeah, the quote, uh, Writers are vacuum cleaners who suck up other people's lives and weave them into stories like a sparrow builds a nest from
6: scraps. That's true. That's what what we all do. And, And I know that in my own experience, that's what I do Uh, sometimes not even realizing that I do it, Uh, you know, meeting people and seeing people. I just collect these little tidbits and uh, eventually those are woven into some story that I might uh, be writing.
1: So as you uh, very specifically say, scraps is not a quilting book, (laughs) but you know, there there are these stories are like a tapestry of stimulating fiction. Now, what is the
6: stimulating fiction what kind of a theme do you have well there's not a theme that goes uh, you know through the entire book in that sense, Steve. but the stories are are just a, a lot of life stories uh, they involve people, real life people, and what real life people are are dealing with and how they how they challenge each other, each other indirectly sometimes, sometimes very directly, and, of course, the uh, always the hidden theme of, uh, well, you know, is this going to be hurtful? Is this going to be loving? Uh, and, of course, sometimes the ending uh, will surprise even ourselves in our real life, and and the endings will surprise us in these stories, too.
1: And you touch on our memories, and you touch on our vulnerabilities.
6: Well, that's really, really right. Some of these stories uh, came out of the past. Um, I'm a native of Wyoming, and so I gleaned a lot of scraps from there, too. And uh, some of these stories delve back into my childhood, and and I've had readers that have read the book, Scraps, uh, tell me, boy, this, I really relate to this. I can remember doing this when I was a when I was a child, or I can really relate to walking around the lake uh, as you do in your stories, because I used to do that. And I used to see people that were just exactly like you portrayed them in this book. And they really have enjoyed reading this book scraps.
1: So you've really tried to make it realistic because you say my characters experience and struggle with these different desires. And like us, sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not.
6: That's true. And that's, uh steve i've tried to write i try to write realistically these people are just like uh, you and just like me and just like the people we meet every day in our own families and uh, our own struggles and our own beliefs and uh sometimes uh, we get misled too by outsiders and uh then these stories in our lives or our lives as portrayed in these stories um sometimes have surprising endings. We may dream about things all uh, all our life, and uh, sometimes we realize those dreams and sometimes we don't. And, And sometimes we realize those dreams in a way in which we would have no idea it was going to happen. And I like to surprise readers that way.
1: And you talk about the challenge of writing believable characters. That is really a challenge.
6: It really is a challenge to write believable characters because you pick a character or you don't really necessarily pick a character, but a character comes to mind. And and I really try to put myself in that character's place and what would I do in this situation or how would I react to uh, this other person. Uh, and I try to make it as realistic as I can because... Uh, I'm sure you've read books, too, Steve, that the characters just don't seem real. You know, they couldn't do that, or, you know, they couldn't think like that. And uh, I try to avoid that. I try to make them just everyday, common, ordinary people, uh, just like you and me. You call that realistic creativity. I call that realistic (laughs) creativity, right. And I think a lot of that, you have to be a real observer of life. And I I really think I am a, a real observer of life, of people and of life. It's, uh, it's kind of like standing on a street corner and watching the people walk by, but it goes deeper than that. Uh, people have coats on and clothes on and, and they look a certain way, but uh, how do they really look, uh, you know, in their own mind? How do they really look? And uh, how are they really presenting themselves in the world? And uh, kind of like looking at these people that way really analyzing them and how we think they might really be and yeah. then being able to write that is the challenge
1: and how these characters might respond in a, in a different situation that you put them in thats that's always a
6: surprise to me too and I, I enjoy that part <laughs> you of it. enjoy that part
1: you know, all of a sudden your characters come to life and they start talking right that's right and you go wow i didn't know they knew that <laughs> that's right <laughs> where'd they get that idea from <laughs> absolutely you make this statement. You said some of the short stories in Scraps are, re, are a reminder of simpler times, our history, something we all yearn for. Now, talk about that. Help us understand what you're saying there.
6: A few of the stories in Scraps uh, come from simpler times. Uh, they, uh, they delve back uh, to a time when we didn't have all the electronic media that we have now. Um, there's two stories in particular. Come spring is one, and the the other one is called the box social. And these are uh, these are events that occurred back in oh, say in the uh, 40s and 50s. Uh, and these were social interactions where people actually got together and did things uh, socially without the use of electronic devices. And I I kind of think that's Interesting, well, I, I, th- I think it's very interesting because we are so attuned to doing everything uh, through electronic media now. Uh, and in fact, you'll see some of the cartoons in, in the everyday paper where uh, people uh, start to chat over the back fence and they say, well, you know, you can see my comments on Facebook. And uh, these stories, like uh, I mentioned, go back to a time when people interacted face-to-face. And uh, the box social is a uh, where uh, sandwiches were made by uh, the women and, and the young young women, and uh, then they were auctioned off, and they were always auctioned off for a good cause. Uh, but as a young uh, person, as you'll see in the story, you'll find out why he's, he started to perspire, because he got his father to do the bidding for him. And these were social interaction things that we just don't, see anymore. And I think some people yearn for that. They yearn for simpler times and they will enjoy these stories.
1: Now the characters that are involved with lake stories are are these people that you knew or these uh, situations, uh, experiences that real people went through or is this just what you've created?
6: These are all fiction just what I created uh, they're created, uh, or they are based on people that I saw, uh, observed around the lake on my walks, and uh, I just made up these stories about them. They, I never met any of those people in, in the lake stories. They're just truly fictional stories that I uh, invented, but based on real people that I saw around the lake and behaviors that I saw around the lake.
1: Without giving away the uh, the the climax of this short story, tell us about the character Angelica. Just, you know, give us some little insight into Angelica and what she's going through, her mental process.
6: Here's Angelica, a young woman, uh, Hispanic in in uh, origin, of course. And she's, uh, she was, as a young girl, she was attracted to a, a fellow at the lake and, uh, and not even a romance particularly blossomed, although she, uh, as a young girl, felt giddy in love with this guy and and ultimately became pregnant and things didn't work out and, and because of age difference and many other things. And so here's a mother with a child and she's trying to get back into school to get, gain education so that she can become something and support herself. Well, the father... Enters back into the picture, and uh, slowly but surely, she wants him to get to know his and her son. But here she's torn uh, because she has a goal now. Boy, she has got a goal. She's going to make something of herself. She doesn't want to be caught back in this trap uh, with this man. But uh, this is all then pictured because she's waiting for him. He—they've come to a point where. She allows him to take the, their son that they share uh, for an evening, and he's not returned the son. And this is uh, the setting is in, a, in the wintertime, and she's sitting in her car, and it's cold, and, and that increases her anxiety. And where can her, uh, uh, the father's, her son's father be? He's late bringing back the son, and all this anxiety is carried through in the icy cold of this car. That is Angelica. Now,
1: why do you take us to England?
6: Well, England, uh, I just looked for variety. Uh, I took you to England because I witnessed uh, an episode similar to what happened in Balby in this story, and I thought it would be interesting. And uh, It could happen anywhere, but this one did happen in England.
1: And then you have, I guess, a comment about death and taxes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know the things that we all can count on right
6: well uh you know there's always that saying uh, uh you know about death and taxes and uh here's loomis in uh death and taxes and and loomis has uh lived a, a long life but uh uh unbeknownst to him uh taxes are coming due and uh Well, you'll have to read the story to find out who wins, death or taxes. So it's an interesting story. You have another title, Never Be Afraid Again. Never Be Afraid Again uh, is a story that I wrote pertaining to uh, concealed weapon carry and uh, how concealed weapon carry can make us feel very safe. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe.
1: Maybe. Yes, it may be just uh, an illusion, huh? <laughs> well,
6: you'll have to read the story. That's see, right. Dude. That's right.
1: When you when you when you can feel that weapon against you, I guess you know it's a different feeling than when you don't have it on.
6: <laughs> yes, I'm sure that's true. And who's Petey? Petey is a parrot. <laughs> <laughs> and Okay, I'm uh, this is glad I is my, asked. This, Petey. Is, this is my fictional choice for <laughs> uh, for comedy uh, humor. <laughs> okay. And um, Petey is a parrot that uh, comes in to see this veterinarian via his owner, and Petey looks dead as a doornail in the cage. But uh, <laughs> anyway, this young veterinarian is uh, optimistic that he can save anyone's life. But... Uh, Anyway, uh, you'll get some laughs out of that story. (laughs) He's a a parrot full of surprises.
1: Tell us about your website.
6: My website uh, is easy to access. It's www.davidluck.net. So it's just my name and .net. And you can find out more information about me and and also information about my uh, other books that are available also.
1: And we can get your book through iUniverse, as well as, I'm sure, all the
6: online retailers. That is correct. Uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Nobles. Any bookstore can, uh, can arrange to uh, get the book for you.
1: Well, David, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very
6: much uh, for talking with me, Steve, and uh, enjoy Scraps.
1: That was David Luck, the author of his book, Scraps.